it's pretty rare that a guest and I have come into a recording for SSR having had two significantly different rereading experiences. In fact, this episode, episode 106, might be the most extreme case yet, but I love it. I came into this conversation thinking my guest must have had the same reaction that I did to the book, while she fully expected me to have been on her ride. In the end, I think we each helped temper the other's feelings just a little bit, and we met somewhere in the middle. Plus, we had a lot of fun along the way. The book is Louise Renison's Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, which was published back in 1999. It was the first of 10 books in the Confessions of Georgia Nicholson series and is our introduction to Georgia, a teenager living in the UK and navigating everything from friendships and crushes to underwear and bad hair. Over the course of the book, she gets involved in all kinds of antics in pursuit of the perfect look and, of course, the sex god, an older boy whose real name is Robbie and who spends most of the book, excuse my language so early in the episode, fucking with her brain. Georgia has one of the most distinct and special voices of any narrator that I've read in a long time, and coming back to her story truly made me feel like I was back in high school in the early aughts. This kind of nostalgia can feel really great, but as you'll hear later in the episode, it has its downsides too. Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging is, as my guest so perfectly describes it, a real time capsule of the age in which it was written. And when we get into certain kinds of language and jokes, that's not always a good thing. But you'll hear us break all of that down in just a few minutes. On episode 106, you'll also hear us dive into the teacher's pet trope, power imbalances in friend groups, love stories between teens and pets, and the extent to which revisiting an old book can resurface some of your old insecurities. Well, my old insecurities. We wrap up the episode with a very SSR conversation about how we all have to be responsible for making decisions about the kind of older art we want to engage with and set a personal plan for how to enjoy it while also noting its problems. My guest is super articulate about this question, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. You have actually heard from this guest before on the podcast. Jessica Goodman is our first ever repeat SSR guest. You met her for the first time all the way back on episode 7, when we discussed the first book in the Babysitter's Club series, Christie's Great Idea. Today, she joins us as a debut author, literally today. Her first book, They Wish They Were Us, hits shelves the day this episode goes live, and I am telling you right now, you have to read it. It's one of the best books I've read so far this summer. Jess is also the op-ed editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and I feel very lucky to have gotten to know her over the years. Follow her on Twitter at JessGood and on Instagram at JessicaGoodman. And since you're going to go follow her anyway, you might as well go ahead and wish her and They Wish They Were Us a happy book birthday and get yourself a copy. I promise you're going to love it. I would love to have you following SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Search for The SSR Podcast community on Facebook if you want to join the smaller, more chatty group that's growing over there. We do a little extra book talk, and I share more podcast sneak peeks and behind-the-scenes info. Let's talk about some ways you can help support the podcast, shall we? First, you can leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes. It really is a very quick process, and it goes a long way toward helping people find SSR. Oh, and now that you're following SSR on social media, you can help spread the word there, too. Take a screenshot of this episode and share it to your Instagram story, tagging SSRPod so I can see it. You can even add a note about what you're doing while you listen. You can also support the podcast with the purchase of SSR merch. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com shop to check out stickers, bookmarks, tote bags, and t-shirts. You get to rock your love for books and the podcast with some very cute swag, if I do say so myself, and the show benefits in the process. It really is a win-win. Finally, you can support through Patreon. Patreon patrons contribute a few dollars every month, as little as $1, to the production of the show, and they get awesome rewards in return. 
Merch, book recommendations, newsletters, bonus episodes, and more are all up for grabs. As a reminder, I'm an independent podcaster, and I don't have the backing of a larger company, so the support I get through Patreon really does keep the show going strong. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. Big shout out to all of the patrons tuning in to episode 106. Enough about how to support the podcast. Let's talk about how to support indie bookstores. Did you know that you can support small booksellers by buying audiobooks? It's true. You don't have to go through the big companies. Don't make me name names. Libro.fm is a platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from those bigger companies. They're the same price, too. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSR when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Enjoy! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jess. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks for having me. I have so many things to tell you. So first of all, I have to tell you, happy book birthday to your debut YA novel, which comes out today when this episode drops August 4th. I know we're now recording in like late May, but let's just try to picture what you're doing today to celebrate the birth of your first book. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Future me is very excited. Um, Current me is also really excited, but let's see. So it's August 4th. Let's say it's the morning. I'm probably having like the dopest breakfast possible. Okay. Um, And then hopefully I'm just like spending the day like talking to readers maybe like on social media, promoting the book. There will be some sort of like fun secret, well not secret now, but not secret in the future um, event that we're doing that night. So I'll make sure to post about it on social if you're interested. I'm at Twitter at Jess Good, Instagram at Jessica Goodman. Well, I am your biggest cheerleader for this book. They wish they were us. If I haven't said the title yet, that's the title. I'm obsessed with the book, so um, please go out and pick it up, listeners. I also want to say to you, Jess, that you are our first ever repeat guest, which I'm really excited about, and I would not have it any other way, and I'm thinking back on when we did our first recording. I think you were episode, like, five or seven. I literally had no idea what I was doing. I I still, like, only kind of know what I'm doing, but I feel like at least I'm approaching this conversation with, like, a little bit more confidence and maybe taking myself a little less seriously. Well, I remember that conversation very fondly, and it was so much fun because we talked about the Babysitter's Club. It was, like, so fun to dip back into that world because I don't read like a ton of middle grade these days um I do some but not like a ton and it was just so much fun and oh my god you were a dream and you're still a dream and you can take yourself as seriously or not seriously as you want (laughs) thank you well it's 9 8 a.m on a Thursday so I'm gonna choose not to take myself very seriously but listeners I'm gonna link back to that first episode with Jess in the show notes for this episode so go check it out if you haven't and we can do like a compare and contrast maybe to like my interviewing abilities but let's just like focus 
focus on the present. And I'd like to reiterate that it's 9.08 a.m. on a Thursday, and yet because of the conversation we're about to have, I would very much like to be drinking some sort of an adult beverage and not a mimosa, like something a little bit more real because this book for me was such a ride. We're talking about Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging by Louise Renison, and I, I just want to say... I have gotten so many DMs from people who saw that I was reading this on Instagram who were like, oh my god, I was obsessed with this book. This is the best book ever. Can't wait to hear you talk about it. Uh, and I um, <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to let everyone down because this was this was rough for me. So um, I'm, I'm giving everyone fair warning. This does not hold up well. It, I'm answering my own usual finale question. This does not hold up well. What do you think, Jess, overall? Oh, my God, Allie. I'm, like, so sorry for you um, that you felt that way. Okay, so I just have to preface this. Growing up, this was, like, one of my top five favorite books that I read over and over and over again. Like, I haven't read this one probably in 15 years. No, maybe, like... Yeah, maybe like 15 years, but from ages like 12 to 15, I, I read it constantly. Like my version at home is like broken because I read it so much. And I got to say, like, I still laughed out loud while reading some of these lines. <laughs> um, like, I still think it's one of the funniest YA books and like probably books, period. Yes, like a lot of the PC stuff is not PC. It does not hold up. And we sh will definitely talk about that. But what struck me just like right off the bat was that the voice was just so, so, so strong. And I think I remember loving it so much because I never read anything like that before. And so much of the so much of the literature that was like written for teens back then was very much like adults writing for teens. And obviously this author is an adult, but it just felt authentic the way my friends and I spoke, like in the American version. And I just remember like reading this at summer camp and like, being so, like laughing out loud in my bunk bed and it just like really brought me back to that time in a really like lovely way <laughs> well I'm so glad you had that experience um, <laughs> I think this could mean that we're gonna have a really interesting conversation so I I too read this when I was a kid I remember loving it it was not like a book that I reread I actually didn't even know that there were nine other books in the series so oh. I've read, like, six of them. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, I, I just stopped with this one, which, like, says to me that I, like, liked it but didn't love it. I remember hiding it from—definitely from my dad because of the title. But I couldn't have hid it from my mom because, like, my mom would have taken me to the bookstore. So that's kind of interesting to me. Like, I wonder how I found it and— my mom's like pretty chill about that kind of stuff, but still, like the book came out in the U.S. in 2000, and I would imagine that I probably read it by like 2001 or 2002 when I was 11 or 12. So, I, like, again, my mom's chill, but this title is like sort of racy and like I don't know, very different than anything else that I was reading at the time. So, my like number one memory is of like sort of being embarrassed to be reading it because of the title, and I don't think a lot of my other friends were reading it, so it wasn't like cool. I don't know, but I can see how, like, reading it at summer camp, it would be, like, kind of exciting to have it. And I, I will say, like, it's funny. I mean, I had moments that I was laughing out loud, too, and I think the voice is, like, super unique and special. And, yeah, it does feel like a kid writing it, even though it's very much, like, written by an adult. I think she was actually in her mid-40s when she, when she had these books published, which is, like, kind of a nice story for people who worry that, like, you know, they're in their 20s and they're never going to get their book published. But, yeah, I mean, and I hate to even, like, 
use the phrase PC because I, I just think that like that gets into such dangerous territory. But there were just things about like the overall sensibility of the book that bothered me. And maybe I'm too sensitive and maybe I spend like too much time in this world of like parsing kids books and trying to figure out like what's quote unquote okay and what's not okay. But it just like bugged me so much that like normally when I get ready for interviews like I go back through all of the notes that I made and all the highlights that I did while I was writing and then I sort of like transpose some of that like from the book to like my other notes that I keep in my iPad I'm gonna say I didn't even want to go back through it like I did not and (laughs) you're laughing at me but it's true and I also felt like I felt like if I wanted to I could open any I could open the book to any page like while you and I are talking and I would have a highlight or a note that would like I would have an opinion about enough that I could just like ask you a question I didn't feel like I needed to have the notes written down separately because I just I was like oh I can just like pick a page and I'm sure I'll have something to say yeah I mean, the book is, like, extremely problematic in a number of ways, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it was such, to me, it represented, like, such a time capsule of this era. Like, specifically, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we can talk about it now, too. If you want, like, the way that Georgia and her friends talk about, like, lesbians or, Mm -hmm. like, gay culture, they just clearly are, like, so ignorant. And for those of you who haven't read the book recently, it's, like, they, they, like, call one of their teachers, like, a lesbian and, like, make fun of her and like don't want her to see them working out or like doing yoga or whatever and it's just so wrong obviously but it also like really brings me back to being like a middle schooler where boys would use the word like gay as a slur and to me that's just like so mid-2000s when people were just wrong about this stuff and really ignorant and insensitive about like that kind of culture. And that was one of the things that that did bother me about the book for sure. Yeah. And I I think you're right. I think that all of that language is definitely reflective of like the moment in time. And I would be lying if I said that I wasn't like party to some of those conversations when I was a kid. Obviously, I look back at that now and I'm like, that's terrible that I would not object or like not have any sort of a feeling about it. But that's just like the way that people spoke about the gay community, unfortunately, in the early and mid-aughts and before that, of course. And I think luckily there's, you know, at least we're moving toward a place where that's less tolerated. Um, I am not naive enough to believe that, like, we have this whole new, like, world and a new way that we talk about people and that we're not afraid of difference. Like, that's not true. Um, There's a lot of people that are still, like, fighting so that we don't have this kind of language exist in anywhere in the world and that's just not the way it is yet. I think that for me it was just... It, what, what felt like it tipped the scales was that it just, there was like this underlying sense of homophobia and all of that too. Like it wasn't just the way they were talking about it. Because I think to an extent, like teens are always going to have those conversations among themselves because they're trying to figure out the world. Like if you can't talk to your best friends about sexuality, who can you talk to about it? Like if you, if you can't have an honest conversation with like your BFF about like, oh, like how do you become a lesbian? And and your BFF come back and say, oh, you don't become a lesbian. Like people are born that way. Like you don't understand how it works. Those conversations make total sense to me. What like made me have like this ick factor was more just that Georgia, our main character, was like so disgusted by the idea that her PE teacher was a lesbian. And like, I don't know, I just felt like she was constantly like on guard for gay people and 
this idea that like, oh, well, if I can't get a boyfriend, I guess I'll just become a lesbian. And like the implication that that would be a terrible fate for her. Again, like I hate to take this too seriously. I I promised that I wouldn't take myself too seriously, but I'm taking this book maybe a little too seriously. I don't know. It just, it felt like it kept coming up again and again. And it made me sad, especially because when I was doing research about the book and this was like, this has been highly objected for many years. I believe it was number 27 on the ALA's list for like most objected books from 2000 to 2009. And one of the reasons that it's been challenged is because of all of the mentions of homosexuality. And to me, I'm like, I hate all the mentions of homophobia. Like, please mention the gay community as much as you want, but I wanted to object to it because of the homophobia. I totally agree. Um, The whole thing is really confusing. And I think that you're not like taking it too seriously. Like, I think it should be talked about because this is like one of the most popular YA books like of all time. And like, I personally would love to see it like re-edited for 2020 where you can like still have all of this like amazing humor and maybe just like recast those conversations to make George's mindset like be a little bit more open and like I would love to to have a book editor take a look at this now and just be like wait a second like none of this stuff would ever fly in publishing if it was like submitted in a manuscript did you know that it won a prince honor I did know that I looked that up too and I was I was shocked I was shocked. I mean, again, like no shade, but I just, I didn't know. And I found a bunch of articles about the series, not as many actually as I thought that I would, but I found one piece that's sort of like a flashback, nostalgic look at it um, in book page. And uh, the author was talking about like the climate of YA at this time. And they said, then there's the climate of YA lit into which Renison was writing Angus Thongs, a 2001 Prince Honor book entered the American YA lit scene in April 2000 at a time when the Prince Award had just recognized its first crop of winners. John Green was about to graduate from college and Harry Potter fans were eagerly awaiting the upcoming fourth book. Technology was different too. Georgia and her friends pass notes in class rather than texting, call each other from phone boxes and listen to music on audio tapes, but their desire to evade school rules, their interest in kissing lessons, and their frustrations with their parents are universal teen themes. So obviously like the second half of that passage gets more into like the content of the book, but I did appreciate that sort of like that like moment in time. It really was like the beginning, I think, of why as we know it, and nobody was really doing what she did with this book. And so even though I have some feelings about it and how it's held up in 2020, I totally applaud this as like a new venture in 2000 when it came out. Totally. I think like with any piece of art or literature, you like can't look at it in a vacuum. Like it has to exist in the context of when it was released and how it was received. But to me also, this book is always coupled in my mind with Megan McCafferty's sloppy first. Like Uh I think I, I must've read them around the same time and um, read them both over and over and over, cover to cover. Shout out Jessica Darling series, like, forever and ever. Love it. And I think to me, like, I found these books at a time when, like, I was just at the right age where I was, like, really so obsessed with, like, boys and learning about kissing and having fights with my friends that seemed, like, so monumental, but, you know, were about, like, really silly things, probably. And to me, like, it felt like for the first time, like, I was reading literature that was, like, speaking directly to me. I totally get that. And from the other side, I mean, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but when I was 11, 12, 13, I was like very freaked out by the idea of being physical with a boy or dating a boy. Like I wasn't interested at all. I was really afraid. And so I think what I 
I, I mean, I loved Jessica Darling too, and we covered that on the show actually with our mutual best friend, Maddie Boardman, and I'll link to that episode in the show notes. Um, shout out to Maddie and Jessica Darling. You know, I think what I connected to in those books more is that Jessica Darling like ultimately gets more comfortable with her sexuality, but I, I think I, I sort of understood her trepidation more. Georgia is just like very different than the kid that I was. And there's a lot of that to love, of course, but I think, I don't know, maybe coming back to this book as an adult is like shaking up some like weird, long forgotten insecurities that I had as like a tween about reading these kinds of books and like not really understanding some of the like humor and not understanding some of the like innuendo because I I can't imagine that I understood a lot about what was in these books because I was so inexperienced. I didn't have my first kiss until I was 16. So I've never said that on the podcast before. Um, so like this was all crazy to me and it freaked me out. And uh, so I wonder if some of my like, I don't know, resistance to it now is like a weird reaction to that. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, I feel like a therapist would like love to get into that with you. <laughs> Let me just get mine on the phone. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Oh my God, this book. Yeah, I I think for me, like so much of it, reading it back now, I'm like struck by some of the more like problematic, the other problematic elements too that like seem normal to me as a kid. Like the fact that the sex god that she's obsessed with is like 18 and she's 14. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I really registered that when I was reading it for the first time. And yes, of course, like that is legal. I think he's like 17. Like it's like whatever. It's just kind of like a strange juxtaposition, I think. And all the stuff about like how she goes to a professional, like she, so Georgia goes to like a professional kisser to like have her first kiss <laughs> and ends up kind of like dating him by accident because right. he just like assumes that they're in a relationship or something. Yeah. And to me, that was actually like really spot on in terms of like, in terms of like how 14 year old or 15 year old boys act where like all of a sudden you're just like in a relationship by accident and then you're like, wait, I don't like you or know you at all. And like, how is, why is this happening to me? And I, and like all the stuff with the boys, I think was just like, I just remember reading these lines out loud with my camp friends and like laughing hysterically about them. I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I think the relationships that she has with boys throughout the book, and she has a few different kinds of relationships with a few different boys, I think that they all sort of like play into these storylines that we were very used to seeing and reading about in the early to mid aughts that didn't seem strange at all. Like you said, like this sort of played for laughs relationship with a professional kisser turned kind of boyfriend. I also thought that was really funny. You know, this like boy down the street who just like randomly comes up and like grabs her boob, which in hindsight, is, like, super fucked up and scary. This, like, older guy that she's into who essentially spends the whole book, like, messing with her brain. These were all things that we saw in teen movies in the early to mid-aughts and that were often, like, meant to be funny or, like, normal. And so I'm always careful to, like, not... I'm always careful, like, not to make assumptions that, like, an author was trying to do anything insidious with these kinds of stories because obviously like this book is of the time and like it makes sense that this is what she included but it is strange to read some of it now and I was very put off by like most of the relationships and I I like wanted more for Georgia and I think that was my frustration like I was like she just has such bad taste in guys and I was like 14 she's also 14 but like 
I just think that she had really bad radar. Like, I I agree. Like, I didn't have great taste in guys when I was 14 because, I was afraid of them. But also, like, the guys that I was sort of crushing on from afar were sometimes fine and sometimes not so fine. But I just, it made me upset that she, like, thought that being treated in those ways was was normal. I know. It was bad. Um, which also, I mean, it's kind of like what were, like, I wonder what her role models were at the time. Like, you know, she talks a lot about reading Cosmo, like stealing her mom's Cosmo, and I work at Cosmo, and I can attest that the Cosmo of 2020 is very different than the Cosmo of the early aughts. And, you know, she talks about, like, there's a lot of, like, how to please your man language and, like, that kind of thing that was really popular back then and even before then. So it's kind of like, again, in context like what what were her role models of like a healthy relationship in like the larger pop culture world and also like in her family like one of the like underlying like storytelling aspects of the of this that I kept coming back to also was like the fact that her father was like leaving the family to go to New Zealand to like find work because he couldn't find work in their home that's like a really traumatizing thing to happen to a, a kid and I feel like the the way that she was talking about it and like avoiding it, she was basically just like, oh, I don't miss my dad. Like this is, this is like whatever. I'm more focused on my friends and boys and all this stuff. And then would have like a tiny line that's like, oh, I, I kind of miss my dad. It's like all this like repressed trauma almost that like you kind of wonder like, oh, poor Georgia as an adult, like how is she doing? This is like a, like a really hard thing to deal with. But I found it to be like very true to being a teenager where, or like a tween where you're kind of just like suppressing this really difficult emotion because it's like, it's just too hard to deal with. Yeah. And I think that the tendency that a lot of teens have to like manifest whatever those feelings are, especially towards your parents as like anger and yeah. Like, even if you're sad or just lonely or frustrated or whatever, like, you show up at school and the prevailing feeling is, like, I'm mad at them. They suck. Like, they're ruining my life. Because you don't necessarily know how to process, like, other levels of emotion about things. Yeah. And I, I think that's spot on. And I like the way you described it. And I think that's something that I was probably guilty of when I was in high school. Her family was really interesting. I mean, I, I would like to talk more about her parents' relationship because I was, like, very curious about that throughout the book. And up until, like, the last few pages, I couldn't figure out if her mom was actually having an affair with the contractor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he. I think she was not. I think maybe she was having, like, an emotional—like, she needed a friend. So I don't want to say emotional affair because I think there's an argument to be made that, like, an emotional affair is potentially worse than a physical affair. But, like, I think she was lonely and she, like, needed a friend. And this handsome contractor was there to pal around with her while her husband was in New Zealand looking for work. Yeah, that was really sad. Yeah, her family life was, like, really difficult. But I also, like, really loved her three-year-old sister. <laughs> yeah, she was, like, a different level of comic relief. Not that we, like, needed comic relief because Georgia was hilarious throughout the whole book but I feel like her sister brought in like a different like kind of like zest to the story yes totally just like a weirdo kid that I loved <laughs> yeah something else that I was thinking about throughout the book and this kind of like moves the conversation to Georgia's school life I think so often we're used to reading books about these kids that even if they don't like love school or even if they're not like typically good students or like teacher's pets in the way that sometimes like we read about or see and I know some people roll their eyes at the teacher's pet but like I was a teacher's pet I think we're so used to seeing characters like that in books and I, I wonder if it's because like authors and publishers assume that like a lot of kids who are reading books 
frequently are teacher's pets. So, like, those are the kinds of characters they'll relate to. And Georgia is so different than that. I mean, she does not enjoy school. She has no shame about getting into all kinds of trouble at school. And I, I, there was a part of me that found that like really refreshing because I feel like maybe it made the book more accessible to different kinds of readers. But it, it was like very unique to me. It was like surprising. And I, I don't think I have a feeling about it either way, but I did make note of it throughout the book. Totally. Actually, some of my favorite parts of the book were her and her friends like pulling pranks. Like it just seemed so genuine and real and like the fact that she like so one of the pranks was like they they had like a substitute teacher or something and like every time the teacher like turned her back they all like moved and like a couple centimeters or inches backwards and by the end of the class they were all all their desks were at the back of the room and like the teacher turned around and like had a fit and I just found that like so funny I don't know why like I was like laughing along with that and like she kept having like giggle fits, you know, and ha- she was like, you know, it's just one of those times where like you can't stop laughing. And I was like, that happened to me like all the time as a all kid. Like, yeah. And it's like this kind of like uncontrollable mania almost that comes with like hormones and friendships and whatever. And I thought that was just like so tender and like made me so nostalgic for like being with my friends and like pulling pranks and making jokes and just like it just was like fun like really really fun fun to read about and fun to like listen to and like there's this one scene I'm like laughing thinking about it where she's like trying to win the tennis tournament and she's playing against the sex or she's like hoping to play against the sex god's girlfriend Lindsay and so she like has to beat this other girl in like the semifinals and she does and it's like so amazing but then she's like I fall to my I fell to my knees like John McEnroe and threw my racket in the air and it hit the like the gym teacher on the head and I like wasn't able to play and I was just like lolling to myself it was like I was just like I thought that was so funny. (laughs) I thought the best part of that was that like instead of playing in the championship she was like she had to go like clean the like sports closet or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was just like uh Georgia you freak I love you. (laughs) Her on the tennis court was like like I think my favorite version of Georgia was potentially when she was on the tennis court like I just loved the way she talked about playing tennis and I loved her attitude. It's great. It's just great. She did have this like really unbridled sense of confidence, even though she was like really insecure about her nose and various other things, you know, other physical things. She did have this like kind of amazing sense of confidence that I think you can only have when you're like really young and like just think you're cool, you know, like my mom always says that I like had a kind of like weirdly high sense of confidence as a kid and I like felt like Georgia did too and I just like really appreciated that about about her yeah I mean I think even though there were like things that she very clearly wanted to change about her body like she talks a lot about plastic surgery for her nose and she go- she has like all of these kinds of mishaps with like trying to change her appearance she accidentally shaves off her eyebrows and like she bleaches a streak of hair which like ultimately falls off and this like meant to be romantic moment with the sex god which I thought those like antics were all really funny but she did have this confidence that like even though she was sort of insecure with herself she was like oh but I'll fix it and it will be fine okay I could never recover from like a strip of hair falling out into like my crush's hand and she was and she was just like whatever (laughs) she's like moving on like I hope you still like me and he does which is like very cool of him I know. Well, he's a whole other issue, but I was just like, go Georgia. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, I can work with this. It's fine. Oh, Georgia. Let's talk about the sex god, a.k.a. Robbie. So we meet Robbie because 
Georgia is sort of like trying to help her friend, her best friend Jazz, connect with who we find out ultimately is Robbie's younger brother who works at this grocery store that their family owns. And while Georgia is in the store, she like stumbles upon Robbie and, you know, you can almost hear like the choir singing as she like locks eyes with him and she's like forever devoted to him because he's just so good looking. And they have like a lot of sort of like misconnections throughout the book and different kinds of like interactions. What did you think of him generally? What was your first impression? Like, what did you think about the way that the author like tied their relationship throughout? I mean, he's like the classic archetype of just like hot older boy in a band who's like moody and brooding and probably like too old and bad for her. Yes. Which like, spoiler, there's a character in my book that's like sort of like that as well. (laughs) And I fell in love with him at the beginning. Uh, Me too. But he and Georgia had like some pretty strange interactions. There's a big power imbalance between the two of them. Like he's 18 or soon to be 18. He's like cool. He's in a band. She's like 14 has no power in this situation. He has a girlfriend. He, you know, kisses her while he still has a girlfriend and is like, oh, I don't want to break up with her. It's like too hard. But like, I want to to be with you. And it's like, what are you doing? You like classic, terrible man. Well, now that you mention it, and I hadn't thought about this while I was reading it, but like one of the things that you explore a lot in your book is sort of like these power imbalances that can exist between teens, which I think is like a very underexplored territory. And yeah, I mean, there is a similar power imbalance here between Robbie and Georgia. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was actually something that I was really intentional about talking about in my book because I felt like that was such a big theme for me growing up, like with my friendships. It always felt like the boys had the power. Reading Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, it was kind of like, in some ways, the boys as a whole had the power. Like, Robbie had power over Georgia. In some ways, Tom, his little brother, had power over her best friend, Jazz. But I do think that, like, Georgia and her friends were kind of, like, self-sufficient. Like, they could have, they could make their own fun, which, like, I really loved. But, yeah, Robbie was kind of a hot mess. And I remember, like, rooting for him as a, rooting for them. Like, when I read it for the first time as a teen, I was like, oh, my God, obviously they have to be together. Like, that's the whole point. But now I was just like, oh, Georgia, like, ditch him and go, like, have your own fun with your friends and just, like, be weird and, like freaky on your own (laughs) yeah totally I mean as I read like the final page or the final pages and spoiler alert they do end up together or they're sort of like feeling things out at least even though she's like going to be going to New Zealand for the summer which is of course the last thing she needs when she's trying to explore a new relationship I was thinking back to when I read this when I was probably 11 or 12 and I was like oh this must have made me so happy it's like the moment at the end of 16 Candles or the end of The Breakfast Club when sort of like the unlikely couple gets together and it's when you've been rooting for the whole time. But I just, I was like, as an adult, I can't get behind this because he's been so shitty to her through so much of the book. I mean, even the way he was playing Georgia and his girlfriend Lindsay against each other through the whole story, it made me so angry. And it it was clear that like he was really taking advantage of this power that he had not only in these relationships but like in the social structure of like the whole school like he's enjoying it a little too much and I thought that the Lindsay stuff was kind of interesting too like the way that Georgia and Jazz decided they're going to start stalking Lindsay because they want to like learn more about her and find out if it's like actually legit between her and Robbie she was her own special dynamic I thought yeah I like felt really bad for her me too just like okay a she has no idea that these like two 14 year olds are like outside her window watching her change and like looking at her naked like 
very traumatizing. And like she, it wasn't her fault that Robbie was an asshole um, and was like trying to get with Georgia behind her back. Basically, one of the things that did make me a little sad though was when Georgia um, wanted to like fight Lindsay, and it's like it, Lindsay's not the problem. With this is like a, a a theme or like a, a trope we we see all the time where like the creator like pits the two women against each other when really it's like the guy's fault who like you know has come between them kind of I didn't appreciate that but yeah and then they kept calling her like too skinny and anorexic and I was just like oh god this is like really just 2000s level like conversation yeah I mean there was a lot generally about like people's bodies and people's faces and people's clothes and I'm not so naive that like I don't think that that's how kids talked in the aughts or how they talk now and again like ashamed to say that I'm surely engaged in like a lot of that when I was a teen but it's weird seeing it now and it just made me sad it made me sad that like at any point readers thought that this was just like always normal and we just um did an episode about sideways stories from wayside school which I really didn't like and that was like very controversial and some people were like not pleased with my opinions and there was a conversation in our Facebook group um where some people were talking about how like you know we don't always want to read about good kids and like we prefer to read about kids that are true to life and I think there's of course an argument to be made for that and again like I'm not arguing that like kids are fundamentally any different now than when this book came out but I do think that like maybe what we are conditioned to accept as consumers of media has changed and so it is sort of jarring totally and I think publishing has probably changed a lot too I mean it certainly has changed a lot um you know who is allowed to publish and who book center on so I think that um this book to me is really like a time capsule yeah something else that she she I mean she just mentioned a lot of subjects like very offhand um which I think I wanted to talk about because I think it speaks to this time capsule idea where like there were things in the early and mid-aughts that like we just didn't think were a big deal and we would just like drop into conversation she sort of jokes a lot about suicide throughout the book and I made a lot of notes about that where she would like specifically use the word suicide like oh I guess I'll just like commit suicide and like things are so terrible or she would kind of like hedge around it about like well, you know, I guess either I become a lesbian or I kill myself. And there were a lot of instances of that throughout the book. I think between that and the homophobia and even like these like very intense attacks on people's like physical beings, it just was a reminder to me of like how much more seriously like we take certain things now or even like how casually she recalls the stories of these boys that would just like come up to her and touch her as if it were like, oh, well, I mean, that was sort of uncomfortable, but, like, it's I'm not mad about it. Like, she was not concerned about those interactions at all. And I, it just was a reminder that, like, we take a lot of things so much more seriously now, and I think that's good, but it makes it, it, makes it really hard to come back to certain pieces of media. Yeah, um, I think you're spot on about the, the suicide commentary. That also, like, really struck me as hurtful, not not helpful to have in, in a book that's written for teens, even though some people might argue that, you know, this is how people talk. I, I, I really don't think that people continuously talk that way now as much as they did back then. But also, like, the the stuff about um, George's interaction with boys and, like things, like, people touching her, I think a lot of that is, like... A, internalized misogyny that, like, you, you kind of yeah. had in that, in that era and a lot of people still have. Like, I, I think that that's just, that hasn't gone away. But one of the throwaway lines or scenes that, like, I kept kept thinking about was how she was like, 
we wanted to walk down the street and see how many, like, see how long it would take us to, or see how many cars would hoot and holler at us. Uh. And she was like, we got 10 cars. Like it took us like hours, but you know, 10 cars honked at us and like cat called us. And I'm just like, wow, the conversation has shifted quite a bit since then. (laughs) It's like, I don't think, I don't think teen are interested in that these days. I mean, I hope, I hope less of them at least now are interested. And again, like these are all things that I was guilty of as a kid. Like even as somebody who was super uncomfortable with the idea of like, being in sort of real relationships or intimacy with other people when I was a tween or even a teen, I liked the way it felt when I was somewhere and like a guy would make a comment about the way I looked. And that's something that I think people are still fighting against today. Like many of us grew up to think that that was some sort of an accomplishment and we're all kind of like trying to get rid of that training. I totally agree. Yeah. I, that, that line probably never even phased me when I was reading it for the first time, but now it was like something that I like kept coming back to and being like, you know, if I had a daughter or like a cousin and was like giving her this book, well, I'm not really sure if I would, but I think I would like really try to talk to them about like why some of the things like aren't like the, why George's mindset isn't the, the right one or the, um, the most helpful or like strongest one, I think, I don't know if right is the right word, but it's like the healthiest, maybe. Yes, exactly. Um, and why, like, I think that again, like her thinking is not in a vacuum. It really reflects the way that we talked about the male gaze and like what desirability meant in that time period. And I think if you look at like a lot of the movies that came out around then, it's like, what, like 10 things I hate about you. She's all that, like these incredible, incredible rom-coms. But like, I haven't watched those in a couple of years and I'm, I'm curious, like what kind of similar tropes are in there as well. It's interesting what you said about kind of being hesitant to give this book to a younger girl in your life now. And I say it's interesting because my, my, general takeaway is that like this book held up for you in a lot of ways although of course we pointed out a lot of the problems with it and I'm sort of maybe I'm assuming but correct me if I'm wrong it sort of feels like you're loving it as somebody who like lived through this time and can like see it as an artifact of that but would maybe like not be a fan of it like sort of introducing these ideas to somebody who hadn't lived through the aughts does that does that track yeah, or I think it's also like or just doesn't really have the the cultural understanding to to know like what parts of this are problematic. Like if you're just reading it and taking it as Bible, you know, as truth, I think that's like a little different than reading it and understanding um you know, well, maybe like this, this joke is funny. I can like appreciate this, this humor and this voice while still, um, you know, identifying things that like don't really track in terms of what, what's healthy. But yeah, I mean, God, this book, it's so funny to come back to it now. I just, yeah, I'm really glad it's like given me so much to think about. (laughs) I know. One thing that I also, I liked a lot about Georgia was I feel like she was pretty like aware of the dynamics of her friendships. I mean, her friendships in general were really fun and I liked reading about them, but I feel like she was pretty aware when like a friendship was becoming unhealthy or was becoming like a bad influence on her. Like she has this one friend, Jackie, who is sort of the instigator and like a lot of their antics, a lot of the things that get them in trouble can all be traced back to Jackie. And I think 
Georgia seems to like being part of it to an extent, but there's a point later in the book where she's like, I feel like I don't want to do this shit anymore. Like, this isn't fun for me. And she calls Jackie out for it. And they end up making up and there's some weird like bargaining that goes on or even in her relationship with jazz like I honestly didn't always like the way she and jazz spoke to each other because I thought that that was like a little bit girl on girl crime stuff but um I think that she was like pretty aware of like when she felt like her friendship with jazz was fun and when it was not so fun and like when it was draining her and when it was energizing her and those are things that even as an adult I struggle with Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I think I'm in literature, especially literature written for teens, like one of my favorite elements is always like the girl on girl friendships, like the female friendships and how they and how like where they're strong and where they're weak and how they how the girls support each other and how they can break each other down. Because I think all women have really complicated dynamics with the other women in their lives. I just think that that's a universal truth. It's so interesting to be in a girl, like a young woman's mindset and, and understand like how they're feeling about a certain female friend at that moment. It's like one day they can be your best friend. The next day they can be your worst enemy. It's just, it's just really complicated, I think. But Jazz and Georgia to me were like the quintessential, like sisterly best friends where they like treat each other maybe not always with like the utmost respect but seem to come back to each other at the end of the day and are quick to forgive even though like Georgia didn't talk to Jazz for a couple days one time (laughs) which happens when you're 14 all too often unfortunately one very important character that we have not touched on at all is Angus Oh my God. Yeah. Are you a cat person? No, you have Irv. I have Irv, obviously. So, I mean, primarily a dog person, but I'm not anti-cat. I don't think I, I mean, I grew up with dogs and cats. At this point, I'm like pretty committed to only having dogs and Matt is allergic to cats. So we couldn't have a cat, but, um, I do find cats to be hilarious. Like, I just think they're so weird and they just do such strange things and they have such bizarre personalities. And like, I am a cat. So I like to read about cats. And Angus was probably one of the highlights of the book for me. And I, just like I I appreciated Georgia most when she was playing tennis, I think that she was, like, actually my favorite version of herself when she was, like, hanging out with Angus. And then at the end, when she was sort of in this desperate search to find him when he went missing. Oh, yeah. Angus is, like, top ten literary cats, I would say. Oh, for sure. Just, like, a great character, a great set piece, a great source of humor, I loved that he was, like, always trying to get, like, the guinea pigs next door, tearing everything apart, and that they all hated him, except when he ran away. They wanted him back so bad. I'm also, like, a real sucker for, like, a teen and a pet falling in love and, like, having that bond. They're, some of my favorite books have that element. Are you and a cat person at all? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, I liked the cat for Georgia. And for some reason, it just seemed like really British to me. Yeah. Do you have the new cover? Is, did you read with the new cover? I actually read it on my Kindle. But have you I, seen this? This I'm going to show I'm going to show you um, my cover, which is like the newest design. Have you seen this imagining of Angus? I've seen that online. And that is not what I thought Angus looked like. To me, he's like <laughs> always the big orange version on yeah. the neon green cover but what did you think i think, think, I, I think he's hilarious i mean he's for listeners who obviously can't see i mean i'll include an, a picture of it in the show notes but he has like his legs spread wide open on this green couch he's like gray and white and fluffy he's wearing a crown and like a tutu around his neck he looks like he's like wasted at a party and i love that 
I like to think that Libby probably like dressed him for that photo shoot. Yeah, I think she made the crown out of like silver pipe cleaners. Yes, totally. So I will say that after talking with you about this book, I don't feel quite as fired up about it. I think that when I was reading it, I was like very sort of like in the moment of like marking down every line that felt weird or problematic. And I was reading it in a vacuum and like Matt has no experience with this book. So like I couldn't sort of swap nostalgia with him about it. And this conversation has like tempered me on it, which I think has been good. And it's been a reminder of like the context in which it was published and the context in which I read it and like the cultural moment that facilitated it. So um, while I, while I stand by my initial take that it is generally like one of the more problematic books that I've read for the podcast, it's sort of like a micro level stepping back and looking big picture. I appreciate it more than I expected to going in. I hear you. Like, have you watched any movies recently where you're like, wow, that is not how I remembered it? Oh, yeah. And it's a lot of those movies from the same time period that you mentioned. Totally. Um, I this, I'm just thinking about this. Like, we watched um, Clue over the weekend, which is like one of my favorite movies. Like, I watched it probably every weekend for like a year when I was a kid. It's just like one of those movies where like I know every single line of it. And watching it back again, there was all of this like really blatant homophobia in it that I did, just didn't pick up on as like a 10 year old watching it and watching it now. I was like, this is upsetting. This part of this is upsetting to me. But again, like that movie was made in like 1985 and it's like, you know, I think everyone has to make like a personal decision of like, if they're interested in like supporting that kind of art still, or if it can exist on some weird, like nostalgia level for them where they like, you know, understand the context in which it was made and the parts that are good, but also the parts that could use a refresh. And I think everyone has their own personal threshold for like what that is and probably depends on like what, what the, the piece of art is too. But yeah, this is like a much rich, like more rich conversation than I think I would have had about this book when I was like 12. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've really, we've really dug deep. There's so much to unpack, but on the whole, do you feel like it's held up for you? I don't think I would go back and read it again. Oh, wow. Okay. But I enjoyed taking a little trip down memory lane and, and I enjoyed realizing what has changed in my own mindset about like what is okay and what's not okay and what I'm willing to put up with and not put up with. I think that that was, that was refreshing. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was like a huge magazine person as a kid, obviously, because I work at Cosmo now. But like at my parents' house, I still have like old issues of Cosmo and Teen Vogue and Elle and like all of these like old magazines. And I remember being so obsessed with them and reading them back now. There is kind of this like overarching tone of like how to please your man. And like I I can appreciate like how far we've come and how how we've refocused like this kind of culture. Yeah. And I don't think Louise Renison was doing anything with this book that anybody else wasn't doing. I think that she is sort of part of this larger narrative, this larger pop culture moment when the book came out. So it's certainly not like a knock on her that I have these feelings. I think she was just like doing what everybody was doing. We were all enjoying the same stuff. So it makes sense that creators kept it coming, but it's nice to be able to step back and be like, hmm, we are having these different kinds of conversations now, and that feels better. Totally. Did you know there was a movie about book? I never saw it. Did you? No, but I just watched the trailer because um, one of my listeners actually sent me a DM and was like, oh, did you know there was a movie? And interestingly, it was directed by the person who directed Bend It Like Beckham and Pride and Prejudice. 
Which for the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. It's, I mean, it was a Nickelodeon movie. I think, I mean, I don't remember ever seeing trailers for it. So I would imagine they'd like, you know, really targeted the UK, but it looks like really funny. Interesting. Like, I wonder if they had changed anything for that, but maybe not. I wonder when it came out. Could be worth a rainy day watch. I think it came out in 2008. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. A couple years later. So what else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh my gosh. Okay. I just finished Big Summer by Jennifer Weiner, and it is phenomenal. It's like a great beachy read about a plus size body pause influencer who goes to be a maid of honor at her ex best friend's wedding in Cape Cod. And like, I can't, I don't want to spoil it, but it's like so much crazy drama ensues that like turns the book kind of into a thriller. And it's really fun. I also just read a beach read by Emily Henry, which is great. It's like a rom-com about two writers who uh, have writer's block and it's just really sweet and tender. What else am I reading? I have my little, my stack on my nightstand. Um, Both of those are on my, like the top of my summer reading list. Yeah, they're great. In terms of some YA books, oh, Felix Ever After. Um, I'm waiting to get that from Books Are Magic and it's supposed to be incredible. And Camp, which is like about a a queer, uh, another YA book about a a queer summer camp that's supposed to be really fun also. Um, I've been hearing a lot about that. Those are some good ones. Yeah, I'm really just trying to like read for joy and entertainment right now. How about you? Yeah, I mean, because listeners, I know it's August where you are, but Jess and I are recording this in late May. And so we're just looking for joy wherever we can find it. I know. I'm really hoping that by August, at least um, in more states than they are now, that some independent bookstores will be open, at least for browsing, even if you can't like spend a ton of time in there. I'm just really hoping for that because I know like I really miss just wandering into my local indie Greenlight bookstore, shout out, and just seeing what's there. You know, even if they have to be at limited capacity and everyone wears masks and gloves, like I would love to just be able to like go and support, support my indie bookstores. But if they're not open and you're still looking to support indie bookstores, bookshop.org is the best. Yes. I just ordered a book from Greenlight, actually. I'm trying to, even though I'm in Philly now, I'm still trying to support my Brooklyn indies. Also, because I, because I'm quarantined, I really don't know what independent bookstores to support in Philly. So I'm just like spreading the love among all the Brooklyn indies. I hear you. I hear you. Um, yeah, I've been trying to like reach, like, uh, find other bookstores to support as well. Like I've been, um, like Powell's is really great and book people in Austin, Texas and Romans and book soup in LA and so many, so many other ones that really need support these days. So, yeah, well, I will include links to all of your recommendations and maybe even to some of those indies in the show notes for this episode. Even when quarantine is over, we should still be loving on these independent bookstores. So I hope that that trend does not go away once we're established in a new normal. Oh yeah, absolutely. Of course, I will also include a link to They Wish They Were Us by one Jessica Goodman. I highly recommend it. I'm not just saying this because you're my friend or because you're a guest on my podcast. I tore through your book in one sitting. It was a joy to read. It was like all of the things that I loved about reading as a teen, plus this like very of its time 2020 feeling. It's a great summer read. Please pick it up, listeners. I can't wait to talk about it with you forever, forever and ever and ever. Oh my God, that warms my heart so much. Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing it and it's, um, it's been 
in my brain and somewhat on the page for like the past nine years. So I'm really excited to just like get it out into the world. And again, hopefully like talk to some readers and see what they think. And yeah, I'm actually working on my second book now and that should come out in summer 2021, I think. And it's like another standalone YA thriller about girls doing bad things. Love it. Well, I can't wait to read that one. And I hope that you are doing exactly what you are envisioning you are doing on August 4th when listeners are tuning into this podcast. I so appreciate your time and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Allie. This is the best. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.